0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Coffee with Comrades, a podcast discussing current events, theory, and action through a radical lens.
1: Hello.
0: Oh, hello. Oh, hello. How are you?
2: I am hanging in there. How are you doing?
0: I am also hanging in there. It has been quite the week.
2: Yeah, it has for you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. My apartment flooded? I got humiliated by a professor, and I witnessed some bullshit after I left the bar on Thursday. So, you know, I'm ready for next week to start.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully next week will be far superior to this one.
0: Oh, it's going to be so great. My TA ship starts on Monday. Fuck yeah.
2: Hey, it's going to be so great. You're going to kick some ass.
0: I know. I'm excited. It's going to be fun. It's going to be hella fun. What are you teaching? Composition. So nothing too crazy. It'll be a good time.
2: Have you looked at your syllabus or anything?
0: I haven't even built it yet. Like, we have, like, a two-week boot camp for new TAs that we go through with the department, and they help you write your syllabus and shit, so...
2: Oh, okay. Well, that works out.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be fun.
2: Fuck yeah, sounds awesome.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. So, you went to the DSA convention.
2: I did. How is that? It was not good. It was very bad, in fact. Um... It was mostly terrible and very awful. It was a performative, sock-dim circle jerk. There was an overt amount of centralization. Every resolution that would have decentralized power and actually built democracy in the DSA was shot down, and every single resolution that would consolidate power into the hands of the few at the at the cost of the many, uh, was voted up. Um, the DSA refused to pass simple resolutions like distributing funds in an egalitarian manner to other chapters. They, uh, re- voted down a resolution that would have made the DSA accessible to all comrades because it was quote unquote too expensive. So basically long and short, DSA doesn't care about disabled comrades. So that's neat. Uh, Also, the DSA decided that it would be a really great idea to make it so that people who couldn't afford dues couldn't be part of the organization because, you know, socialism is all about paying dues and not actually about building power or having people doing work for the organization. It's only about accruing money, which is obviously, you know, super important to the project of socialism. The anti-imperialist bundle, which was a group of resolutions that was anti-intervention in Venezuela, uh, anti-intervention in Cuba, and pro-BDS, passed by a paltry 10 votes, which is fucking shameful. Like, how can you call yourself a socialist organization if you're not fundamentally anti-imperialist? And resolution 9 which is the anti-fascist resolution, only passed by 30 votes, and on Sunday, they tried to repeal it because they're fucking cowards, and they were more scared of... They were more interested in preserving their own asses than actually standing in solidarity with folks that are doing the militant work of anti-fascism. So uh, essentially the DSA has let its mask slip and revealed that it's just a, filled with a bunch of coastal liberal elites who are interested in play-acting socialism much more than they are actually interested in investing in the lives of poor and working class and marginalized and disabled people.
0: Wow. That's... Wow. Yeah, I saw I saw some things on on Twitter, and you know, Protean Mag had a correspondent that had a much more favorable view of the convention than you did.
2: Yeah, I read that article. I disagreed with it a lot. I think that it's not an accurate reflection of the experience that I had and that many of my comrades had there. But that's fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have my own opinions about big tent organizations, and you know one of the one of the opinions is exactly what happened at the DSA convention it's just not centralizing power in a national org is not the way forward i don't think
2: nor i i thought that it would be possible to reform the dsa unlike the democratic party which has always been beholden to the interests of the corporate elite and the ruling class i thought that the dsa that literally has fucking socialist in its name could be pulled further to the left but it has proved that its sole aspiration has become the progressive flank of the democratic party
0: yeah that's disappointing sorry to hear that i'm not
2: the world's better off with uh, people actually doing good work, and that can happen in the DSA, it can happen outside of the DSA, so regardless of what you call yourself, as long as you're doing, you know, good work, that's all that really should matter.
0: Yeah, you were saying DSA LSC opened up their membership to non-DSA members, right?
2: Yeah, for sure, which is pretty dope, um, you know, trying to do some kind of like a hybrid model kind of thing, so yeah, we'll see how that goes.
0: Excited to see how that happens. I think it'll probably be fun yeah it's a step in the right direction at least
2: yeah for sure on a more uplifting and positive note i got to go see a bunch of shows uh got to see a bunch of bands that i like uh got to see uh street fight radio and the Trillbillies and the district sentinel they were performing that weekend which was i guess two weekends ago now and then this weekend uh i got to go visit some friends in jacksonville and hang out and Caught up with uh, Stick to Your Guns, which is a band I've been a fan of for a long time. Um, Got to hang out with some of them and went to a bookstore and uh, talked with them for a while. So really neat. Uh, Shout out to George. Shout out to Stick to Your Guns.
0: Nice. Very cool.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Sounds like a good weekend. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Shall we get to current events?
2: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, to start off our current events section... Two mass shootings occurred in less than 24 hours this past weekend. 31 people were murdered in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. We are seeing the outgrowth of fascist far-right violence and toxic, toxic misogyny. This is the next step of reactionary xenophobia. Lone wolf terror and an escalation of the violence. Meanwhile, Rose City Antifa and other Portland comrades are confronting the far-right this week. If you're in Portland or live within driving distance and are physically able, roll out and make sure that the fascists are opposed. The state has made it abundantly clear that we are going to have to defend our communities on our own. All we have is one another. On the bright side, 8chan got shut down. And uh, the network that they moved to on the darknet is a P2P hosting platform, meaning that the vast majority of the people who are not using VPNs to access 08chan Uh, are having their personal information and their IP addresses publicly broadcasted to the internet. So, not as private and anonymous as it used to be, which is a small silver lining. Yeah,
2: for sure. You know, it's uh, a troubling indication of where things are headed. Shane Burley recently wrote a great article for Truthout that was all about how The right wing are trying to make it a crime to oppose fascism Um, and so obviously it goes without saying that these things are interconnected they're not uh, these random events but they are rather a pattern of escalation uh, of lone wolf violence and I think that it's really important that we recognize that none of this shit is happening in a vacuum that all of it is happening simultaneously that these random acts of violence are not in fact random that they are instead predictable they are the Likely and understandable outcomes of the rhetoric that is being spouted in the White House, that is being touted on Fox News, and that is infecting and rotting the brains of conservative white America. And that is why people are walking into Walmart superstores and shooting up migrants or shooting up people of color because uh, of a quote unquote invasion that's happening. Uh, these things are not happening in isolated ways, the way that you know people on the news might want to tell you. These things are all interconnected, and until we begin to rigorously understand that reality, we're going to continue to court the disaster that is ecofascism.
0: That's why it makes it all the more important to continue to support anti-fascist activities that are happening locally. Support your comrades, y'all. For sure. They're doing the Lord's work.
2: Doing, doing the Lord's work. Yeah. So, if you're in Portland or you have the ability to drive and get there, you should definitely be there for the mobilization on August 17th. In other news, a federal judge denied Chelsea Manning's motion to reconsider fines imposed against her for refusing to testify before the grand jury investigating WikiLeaks. He also undermined due process and refused to hold a hearing. Chelsea Manning is now facing fines of $1,000 a day for refusing to testify. It is likely that Chelsea will remain in prison for at least another year. Chelsea has shown courage and dedication, even in the face of punitive, manipulative attempts to bring her to court. Grand jury resistance is an incredibly brave gesture that many comrades have taken up before, and Chelsea Manning deserves all of our support in the world. People always feel overwhelmed by all this craziness that's going on in the world we we feel like there's nothing for us to do sometimes you know the the state repression and the blatant and and horrifying violence that we encounter every day in this system of late stage capitalism can be debilitating paralyzing and demoralizing but in this particular instance, there's actually something very concrete and relatively easy that you can do. Write to Chelsea. Tell her about your day or about politics or about a movie you watch. Cut out and send her some memes or pictures of cats, whatever it might be. Just just write to her. Um, we have her mailing address in our show notes, but I'll read it out here uh, as well. It's Chelsea Elizabeth Manning, A0181426 william g trosdale that's t r a u s d a l e adult detention center two thousand and one mill road alexandria virginia twenty two thirty three fourteen
0: i know from personal experience how fucking fantastic it is to strike up a conversation with any one of the political prisoners currently sitting in the u s prison system so if you have the ability, just write a letter. It means a lot and it's it really is quite awesome. You know, I have a couple of correspondences with various people and like Eric King, who are just fantastic human beings and um, deserve our support. So if you uh, want some advice on what you want to write or, you know, you're not sure how to get the process started in sending a letter to Chelsea, just hit us up. We've both done it. We can help you. So uh, moving on. In the incredible shithole that is this country, 680 people were arrested by ICE this past week at a poultry farm in Mississippi. Federal agents swept through seven poultry processing plants in Mississippi Wednesday, arresting 680 people in one of the largest immigration raids in U.S. history. Video handed out to reporters by Immigration and Customs Enforcement shows agents entering factories, leading people out in plastic handcuffs, frisking them and loading them onto buses. They were taken to a massive Mississippi National Guard hangar for processing. Outside the base, dozens of family members and supporters gathered chanting, let them go. The mass arrest came on the first day of school and left scores of children traumatized and crying for their parents. Let me repeat that. The first day of school. What's more, the raid occurred because the bosses called the feds on their workers who were unionizing. Democracy Now! reports, last year, the company paid out $3.75 million to settle an Equal Employment Opportunities Commission class action suit, charging the company with sexual harassment, national origin of race discrimination, and retaliation against Latino workers at one of its Mississippi plants. Labor activists say it's the latest raid to target factories where immigrant workers have organized unions, fought back against discrimination, or challenged unsafe and unsanitary conditions. No words. No words, man. Some of these children had both of their parents arrested and they were staying in the school gymnasium. Neighbors were, like, taking them to the school gymnasium because they didn't know what else to do. Like, the United States government effectively made these children orphans in one swift action and that is fucking awful absolutely awful
2: one of the often under discussed definitions of genocide is taking parents away from their children and this is exactly what has been happening under the trump administration this is the part and parcel this is the program this is the escalation of of a white nationalist agenda. And so, again, we have to continually insist that this is not something that is unique. This is not something new. This is what America is. It is what America has always been.
0: Your company unionizes, so you call the feds on your workforce? Like, wow. I hope that community demonizes every single one of those people who made that decision. Just... I hope that they can't go out in public ever again without getting spit on. Absolutely horrific.
2: In other great uplifting news, India is trying to strip Kashmir of its autonomy. India announced this past Monday that it is changing its constitution, effectively stripping Kashmir of its autonomy. Kashmir, which is a Muslim-majority region, would now be subject to the same sort of barbarism as the West Bank is under Israel, since now India can effectively colonize Kashmir and forcibly change the region's demographics. Murtaza Hussain, writing for The Intercept, reports, Over the last several days, prominent Kashmiri political leaders and activists, including many seen as supportive of Indian government rule, have been detained or placed under house arrest. Thousands of Indian soldiers and paramilitaries have been deployed to the region, adding to the whopping 600,000 already stationed in a place widely referred to as the most militarized region on earth. This new change in policy, Kashmiri activists suggest, will likely lead to renewed violence in the province.
0: And we've already seen that. The video surfaced today from the BBC that showed a demonstration, the largest demonstration that has taken place in Kashmir since they instituted the mandatory curfew and the outlawing of assembly, that showed protesters getting shot at, getting tear gas thrown at them, The Indian government denies that the protest even took place. Like, it's bad shit. A lot of people tried to leave the country and barely made it out, you know. Some just can't. They couldn't, they couldn't make it to the airport. And, um, you know, this is, as this unfolds, it's going to be um, pretty horrific. Uh, on a slightly better note, the protests in Hong Kong are raging on. And um, we have to ask ourselves and our listeners, are we entering a new era of mass protest and assembly? Uh, Hong Kong has continuously showed a fantastic solidarity and diversity of tactics in resisting police and state repression uh, on the streets. Some of those tactics are absolutely genius, Um, including the construction. An engineer created a barricade map that was then passed out to Hong Kong residents to create impregnable barricades using zip ties and, and whatever materials that they had available on the street, which is fucking sweet, you know. And um, the community has put out clothing on fences for protesters to change their clothes if they've been seen by cops doing something that could potentially get them arrested, which is just a wonderful show of solidarity and, you know, is it's pretty fucking sweet. Laser pointers at police stations and, like, Getting up on each other's shoulders to spray paint CCTV cameras and um, ways to to mitigate the effects of tear gas, ways to protect people from batons using umbrellas like all of these things are just absolutely fantastic and are are something that should be studied closely for future actions in our country
2: i couldn't agree more this week's episode is brought to you by gray wild who recently increased their patreon pledge to 15 dollars a month so shout out to gray and thank you to all of our generous supporters on patreon
0: If you enjoy this show, if these conversations and stories speak to you, if you've ever learned something new because of Coffee with Comrades, or you just want to help the show grow, you can sign up to support this propaganda project at patreon.com forward slash coffee with comrades. There's a whole bunch of awesome perks you get from signing up, including first access to bonus content, behind the scenes looks at how we organize the show, and we have a couple bonus episodes up there that have yet to be posted publicly. While we plan on always making our content available to all, if you want to get early access to that content, definitely consider signing up for as little as $1 a month.
2: And as always, we're committed to making the content we produce available to all. So if you can't sign up to support the show or you don't have money to pick up one of our zines, we totally get it. Hit us up and we'll figure out a way to get you plugged in. Coffee with Comrades is a proud member of the Rev Left Radio Federation and the Channel Zero Network. Before we get to today's show... Check out this plug from our homies in the Channel Zero Network.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Woo-hoo! This is M1, MA1, MA de la gente, comprende, You feel me? I'm one half a dead press to tell it like it is. Everything is political rap duo. Here, holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to the rebel beat.
3: The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms.
0: Before we dive into this episode, we want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Coffee with Comrades Media Project is meant to help us cut through the alienation and misinformation that clouds our daily lives. We encourage anyone listening to sit down with your closest comrades and listen to this podcast or any podcast together. Talk about it. Ask questions of one another. Chew on this stuff together. Learn together. All we have is us. Let's try to build community in all corners of our lives, even this one. Today we're joined by the Wrong Boys to chat about extremely online leftism, prefiguration, sectarian shenanigans, and the always wonderful Mr. Rogers. So
2: without further ado, we hope you enjoy episode 54 of Coffee with Comrades. Shitposting is counter-revolutionary, featuring Seriously Wrong. If your
1: are drinking beers on the street.
2: So on this week's episode of Coffee with Comrades, we are absolutely amped to sit down with the Wrong Boys, Sean and Aaron, co-hosts of Seriously Wrong, a research-based comedy podcast. Welcome on the program, fellas.
0: Hey, thanks a lot for uh, having us.
4: Yeah, thank you. I'm Aaron, by the way. Yeah, I'm Sean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We probably have a similar listenership, but just in case folks are checking out the show who aren't already familiar with your work, can you explain what Seriously Wrong is? Yeah, Seriously Wrong
3: is a comedy podcast
0: about actualizing
3: utopia. Uh, we're unapologetically you sort in favor of world peace. Uh, we're, you know, willing to maybe look a little bit naive and silly to fight for this, but universal human emancipation is a primary political goal and should be a political goal for, for everyone. I don't think we should be so cynical to not even try for that. Um to specify further, I think. You know, we, we we want to abolish patriarchy, white supremacy, and class society and confederate into a commune of communes where workers own the mean of pr- means of production, where everyone is paid according to need, and we use technology to abolish pain and cruelty forever, and uh, a world where work... Uh, I- where, where work and leisure are merged and democracy is real. No one falls below certain basic standards. And we'd like to increase everyone's standards of living beyond our wildest historical dreams. Uh, we're using less material resources than we would have previously. Uh, we call it library socialism. Uh, it's the sharing of uh, a lot of goods, holding goods in common uh, for the benefit of all. So that's sort of like our political trajectory. And then we try to make it funny um, and cover... Um, you know, real issues, uh, historical issues, and bring facts. uh, A a good episode of the show will hopefully actually give you some information that's useful in your life, maybe towards organizing or just knowledge about the world, but also uh, try to be funny in the process. Um, Also, I just want to say that we deny any allegations, although we are utopians, that we want to turn the seas to lemonade. We understand that's an unworkable (laughs) plan and we don't back that.
2: as
4: delicious as it would be.
2: Yeah, it it would be delicious. I mean, it's encouraging to hear you guys aren't uh, aren't that far fetched at least. Um no, it's it's always fun listening to seriously wrong. Um y'all I, I can unabashedly say y'all are one of my favorite uh podcasts that's out there today. Um I really like look forward to new episodes and laughing and enjoying them. So, um I'm glad that we could finally find a time to collaborate. It's going to be awesome.
3: Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, for sure. So we wanted to have you guys on today to talk about one of Mel and I's favorite subjects, right, Mel?
0: <sighs> yeah. <laughs> we talk about this so much.
2: We talk about this we talk about this ad nauseum because it's a it's a subject that is uh It's pretty close to the both of our hearts and is one that I think uh, y'all have talked about a number of times on Seriously Wrong as well. I'm talking here about very online leftism uh, and specifically on like the really toxic and uh, unhelpful parts of it. Um, But I'm hoping that we can also explore um, in the uh, in the spirit to the utopian spirit of Seriously Wrong, uh, maybe explore some of the more positive aspects of it as well.
3: Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And it is something that it's become, uh, I guess, one of the f- focal points in what we talk about is just the way that because um, it sometimes it represents a difference between means and ends where you have, you know, again, these goals of universal human liberation, which I think is shared for the majority of, uh, you know, uh, radical leftists that I uh, fraternize and deal with. But then you have sometimes really honestly just deep, weird cruelty in social games that are seem to be impediments to that universal human liberation. So um, definitely something that sticks in my craw.
2: Yeah, for sure. The, the whole, uh, you know, notion that we necessarily need to like prefigure these things. And, you know, making jokes about guillotines is maybe not the best way to actually prefigure a truly liberated society. Funny, though, those jokes may occasionally be.
3: Yeah. And I've got an important point to make about guillotines that I'd love to share with you and your listeners here, which is that, you know, at the time of the invention of the guillotine, it was a revolutionary step forward away from like the previous ways of uh, uh, executing people for crimes. You know, previously it was quite violent, uh, prolonged deaths and so on. Um, and so the, the French uh, National Assembly said like, oh, we're going to make this thing that quickly kills people um, and everyone can have equality in death. Um, it's a beautiful idea. And actually, we should copy from that the spirit of invention. Uh, but the guillotine itself, I think, is disgustingly outmoded. We shouldn't bother trying to use anything like a guillotine ever again. But the spirit of saying this is as far as we've come on the idea of the death penalty. Let's make a new transcendent peak, best death penalty. Uh, you know, to ensure equality in death. That spirit of invention is what we should copy. But the guillotine itself should be phased out. That's my. I've got. That's my opinion on the guillotine. <laughs>
2: You sound like uh, you sound like Camus on, uh, on 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 another level over here. Well, uh, I, thank you. Thank you. With with the whole with the whole at reflections on the guillotine. He wrote in a really famous essay called Reflections on the Guillotine that wrote, won him the Nobel Prize. He was like advocating for the abolition of the guillotine altogether and the death penalty more generally. It's a bad joke.
4: Oh,
3: I, I haven't I'm read sorry. it, but that sounds excellent.
2: You'll have to forgive my bad comedic timing. No, it's, it's all good if I
3: had the context. I think I
4: think we were more just like, oh, no, should we have read Camus on guillotines? Oh I don't God, know this. I didn't <laughs> read am, I, am I canceled? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, you're definitely, definitely not canceled. Um, but speaking of canceling and cancel culture, let's dive into this stuff. So I guess one of the things that I'm really interested in, right, is that, you know, I think it's all clear to the four of us, that we live in capitalism, right? And in a certain way, some of its conditions are inescapable. And I think that one of those things that capitalism breeds is competition, right? Capitalism necessarily needs competition in order to thrive, or at least the illusion of competition. And I think that this really leads us to having really dysfunctional movements and infighting inside of those movements. Our... our propensity for for capitalist profit and enterprise actually exacerbates competition and rewards us for cutting each other down and going at each other, uh, rather than actually cooperating. Not only are we atomized and alienated from our comrades, but it also Makes it somehow think that we're better if we possess some sort of secret knowledge or immortal science uh, about uh, the way that the world actually works. You know, um, it's almost like and and it is almost like having a superpower where you're able to perform like material like nuanced materialist analysis to understand the world, and it it really does help you like see the world in a new light or or look beyond the veil, as it were. But I think that that also kind of gives us this sense of almost like this weird elitism and this insularity that is really negative for the potential of building an actual movement.
0: Well, I agree. I also think, you know, um, particularly when it comes to the the possession of some, quote, secret knowledge, you know, the accumulation and possession of knowledge is also the accumulation and possession of power. Particularly when it comes to state institutions and how they weaponize that knowledge in order to uh, continue to oppress certain certain portions of the population, and in destabilizing hierarchies of power, you need to make that information, that knowledge, free and open and accessible to everyone, and and do your best not to sort of gatekeep in that way. You know what I mean? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I,
3: I couldn't agree more with that, uh, Mel. It's like a the, the, I've heard the term um, epistemological justice, the idea of like access to information is, uh, if not like a, a human right, but like an ethical thing that we need to actualize, both in making sure that information is distributed. And then also that uh, another, another part of epistemological justice is like, who do we take seriously and who do we listen to? And so, you, you know, historically, uh, there's been enormous amounts of people disenfranchised from the groups that are listened to. Um, and it's all I see it as sort of like two sides of the same coin is like the lack of access to information and also the lack of um, seriousness in the information that you generate um, as like two sides of this. And I've heard it called epistemological justice. And I like that little thing um, and and sort of on the subject of, of the hierarchy of specialized language. I think there's some benefits in a limited sense to jargon that allows for clarity of thought within sort of specialized areas. But there's this real risk, uh, like you said, of the sort of uh, using jargon as a way to keep people out from understanding, uh, which is an epistemological injustice. Um, And so we're big advocates, uh, Aaron and I, of of trying to simplify things, Uh, not just simplify things, but like seek to not use jargon to obscure what we're saying and try to make sure that what we're saying could potentially be taken on as common sense. Uh, so it's uh, you know doesn't require the teaching of several new words in order to grasp what I'm saying. Not that new words aren't great. Actually, we love new words. Um, but and also, I sort of I just want to get ahead of this criticism I anticipate here on this point of like this idea of uh, I've encountered this before of like oh are you saying that you should dumb down what you're saying. You should, you should dumb down what you're saying so because you don't have any faith in people to understand uh, this immaculate jargon or something like that. Um, and it's the opposite. I think you can absolutely train people to understand any jargon if you just repeat yourself to them enough and you teach them the words and stuff. Uh, you, you, know, you can train people. But I think really respecting people's intelligence is giving them the tools to describe, uh, describe things in their own words. And so that comes with meeting them where they're at to a certain degree in the words that they use uh to, to train people in, t- in jargon, to me, feels like an attempt to automate them, whereas we want to actually encourage people's freedom. And so part of that is to use words that they can conceptually understand. And, and, and not to mention, you know, there's people who have different levels of capability. Not everyone gets a humanities education and knows polysyllabic words. Um, but also there's people with language barriers. English is their second language and so on. So I think there's a real benefit to seeking to speak in in, in Terms that are widely accessible through that frame of epistemological justice and making sure that people have access to information, um, even not just in like withholding information, like military information, where, you know, WikiLeaks releases the war logs and we all see like the the cost of war in Afghanistan, which is awesome and epistemologically just, but also just in the day to day conversations of making sure that our conversations are wide enough to have other people in them as well.
4: Yeah. When you're talking about capitalism and competition and the way that's affecting these online conversations, too, I started thinking about how so much of the online space is not designed actually to have conversations or to facilitate conversations in any way. It's all designed around these companies that own these platforms and their interests, which include collecting data on you to advertise to you. And uh, getting you to click on articles that have really screeching hot take headlines that just, you just can't help yourself. (laughs) And like (laughs) the whole sphere of the internet right now is set up to reward people to um, make quips and to be snarky. And like, we've talked a lot about snark on our podcast and how it like sets you up in the, the, the way snark works is that you are setting yourself up as someone who knows more than the other person. And you're kind of, it's, it's a, it's an inherently condescending way of talking to people that is really pithy and really, and really poignant and uh, pointed. And it, moves very quickly through these uh, platforms because it's it's these powerful words and and the social spaces that, that are created by these companies reward that kind of interaction. And there's all these people who are completely alone, sitting in their houses, on their computers, having these quasi-non-social interactions with people where you're not actually physically near them and so you don't get the, like, human reaction of, oh, like, there's a person nearby me, I'm I'm by myself, I'm actually lonely right now, I'm lonely at the same time that I'm, like, sending out these communications and that tinges these communications uh, because you're not feeling good <laughs> when you're making them a lot of the time and people can read that And it creates this, like, massive global social sphere that, like, people had all this, like, hope for being this great thing, but it ends up being extremely, like, snide and exclusionary and mean and just not fun to participate in and not that educational a lot of the time and not even conversations a lot of the time, just, like, dunking contests
3: yeah, and there's a risk of the people picking up, you know, like you know, good-hearted new Zoomers becoming part of the leftist politic, uh, uh, picking up the snide, the, the picking up the dunks without picking up the universal human human emancipation. I, I'm t- I'm absolutely terrified of this. That people will pick up what what seems to generate the social capital is the is like the dunks and like oh so and so so bad and all this sort of stuff, rather than the underlying message of like we must universally emancipate humanity and slavery and patriarchy and so on and so on. And just like the, the that people pick up that cultural context without uh, picking up the content. And like Aaron said, the lack of educational value is sometimes really stark.
0: I mean, I mentioned this in our 50th episode, talking about you know, the promise of the free and open internet has been sort of subsumed by the competition of capitalism. Uh, a lot of my day job has been working in sort of spheres of marketing, and leveraging that sort of psychology of uh, short sound bites and, you know, quips and, and nice headlines in order to catch your eye and keep you long enough to convince you to buy something. And uh, the Internet's the perfect vehicle for that, uh, almost insidiously, you know. Um, and I think it's interesting that you talk about this, you know, the, the snarkiness. It's digital marketing. It's this, um, it's dominated by this assumption of ideological Superiority, essentially, and so you, you're not necessarily coming at individuals from a space that is uh, on an even keel. When you assume, when you have that assumption, you know you're already playing into a hierarchy of power that takes a lot to dismantle, and it's very difficult to do in a digital space.
3: Yeah, the overlap between tweets and, and advertising seems like uh, a, a profound sort of connection of like that 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 smallness of it, like the boiling it down means that you lose all this information, right? Like you have to boil it down beyond anything that can contain the level of sort of ethical and uh, content that you would ideally want in these spaces.
0: I mean, you just think about, um, who's that journalist? I can't remember the journalist's name. He had like the 480 lot tweet long thread about the Mueller report, I think. Um, and was trying to bring up important points within that particular medium that just like f- was ridiculed by all of us you know for having an entire thread long that was <clears throat> like four hundred and eighty tweets you know all one hundred and eighty characters you can 't have that sort of um, important analysis uh, on a on a, a website that doesn 't necessarily uh engender that sort of uh, ability to do so so you 're trying to work with a medium that will not allow you to, to be able to have these important conversations. And I think a lot of individuals on the left, myself included, Twitter is the only social media that I currently still am on. Um, and it's difficult to have those conversations uh, in a meaningful way that isn't <clears throat> sort of dominated by the, the sound bites and, and the small bits of information that have to be stripped away in order to meet that character threshold.
2: I also think that one of the strange things that goes on, especially in these kinds of circles, is that we have this like propensity for like performing wokeness for an audience uh whereas it's like difficult to tell sometimes whether or not people are being genuine or if they're just in it for the ratios you know if they're just in it to get a bunch of retweets and likes um or if they're like genuinely like passionately devoted to the cause of universal emancipation, right? I think that, you know, it, it, this is also exacerbated even more so by the fact that, you know, our, our adversaries have had a history of infiltration into leftist movements, and if that history is any indication, then these very online interactions are likely being, uh, you know, ha- having the gasoline poured onto the fire by the feds.
0: I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, at the very least, we're doing this ourselves. You know, um and this this uh, this need to sort of create this ideological label for ourselves and then act online in in that space um, it leads to fractured movements, you know, and capitalism as a system is is based on that sort of internalized competition. and so when you you can't really present any sort of united front that would m- move toward m- meaningful change in a liberated society when we ourselves are doing that work you know what i mean and and unnecessarily creating divisions simply uh simply just to get our voices heard you know to hear the sound of our own voices in the the echo chambers that is social media
3: yeah the the idea that you have to like be something or like be a label or pick a category to be part of has always seemed really sort of odd to me and i wonder if there's a uh, I, I don't know, because I want to say like, there's sort of a tension there, there's like a good side and a bad side, like you could have a plurality of these um, you know, when you're talking about assigning a label to yourself, you could have like a plurality of these types of political labels where I'm an anarcho-this-this-this this, this, and you're an anarcho-this-that-that <laughs> that, and we all find a way to somehow work together in that context um, but often it does seem like it's used to um, to enforce these boundaries and then again use that sort of, have that uh bludgeon of uh that like cultural (laughs) yeah clout seeking like (laughs) snark bludgeon um to uh, that sort of precludes the analysis it precludes the content of the universal human emancipation um so there's a yeah there's a tension there i feel like there might be a liberatory way to go about it um I think but just continually fracturing and being like oh now we're creating a new thing that's better and it's going to be totally uh, all encompassing like we do that on the show every week Uh, but like uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, um, it's 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 like in uh, when they there's that XKCD comic about trying to create a new programming language that will. Uh, Because there's too many different programming language standards. So we're going to create a new totalizing one that will work for everyone. And then at the end, it's like you just have one extra programming language and the fracturing sort of continues. You can't just make a new left unity. But you you also don't want total left unity. Like there are things that uh, we need to have hard lines um, on some things some of the time. So there's, I don't know, there's this tension there. I feel like I don't have the exact, like the exact here you can use this in all circumstances kind of solution. Uh, to that that problem
4: yeah i mean the ways that like taking these identities on for ourselves like the the calling yourself a thing and like being a marxist or being an anarchist is uh, i guess it's kind of beside the point in my mind it depends like how you hold that for yourself like is it I'm now an anarchist or I'm I'm a like I'm I'm an anarcho-syndicalist and like I have very specific rigid ideas about what that means. And I can see everything that's happened in history and everything that's currently happening through that lens. And I believe that that lens is right. And I'm here on the internet or in even in real life organizing spaces. I don't think this probably happens in real life as much as on the internet, but I'm here to represent this thing that I am, an anarcho-syndicalist. And I'm here to tell everybody else why they're wrong and why my thing is superior. And, like, I'm starting the project of universal human emancipation by first getting everybody to agree to also be an anarcho-syndicalist with me. That's step one. Uh, I'm going to convince everyone to share my political sub-tendency, and then, and then, once everyone's on board with that, ooh, it'll be smooth sailing. We know where to go from there. Anarcho-syndicalists got the plan. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's absurd and the nothing wrong with anarcho-syndicalism lots of great ideas in there i love political sub theories like subdivisions sub identities i love looking at the world and through history through all these different lenses like oh what's the like marxist take on this what do marxist leninists think about this thing i it's fascinating to me these like different uh worldviews as Sean mentioned like yeah many of them are attempting to be totalizing and like uh I want to be this new programming language that subsumes all the others and that that kind of stuff is really fascinating to me I love these totalizing worldviews I love all of them I want to like (laughs) like I, I I don't love every totalizing worldview uh in terms of uh, the actual content, but I... (laughs) We should lock
3: hands with every...
2: (laughs) The idea of it is very fascinating. (laughs) But
4: I do find them fascinating, even the ones that are, like, morally abhorrent. Um, (laughs) Like, not even left tendencies, just there's plenty of worldviews out there. But the way in which you hold these things, I think is part of what's really important. If you're just saying like, this is my perspective, and this is where I'm coming from. And like, it's a useful signifier for the area that my ideas are in. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. It's just communication. It's good to have labels for things. But it's this sort of like, fully inhabiting and the belief that it's necessary that everyone needs to get on board and like it's just uh, absurd and not going to work so yeah it, yeah
3: yeah and thinking that there's like a single ideological group where that 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 has sort of like a monopoly on the creation of new truth claims and it's sort of like a weird it's sort of like a weird type of like uh identity politics but a, like for political categories of saying like it's like standpoint epistemology literalism except applied to uh like say anarchists that you could only ever trust an account of reality that's framed through the the like anarchist perspective um, or you could only trust uh marxist perspectives on this or that issue um like there's this um it's it's yeah it's really odd when it becomes it's not just It's one thing to say, like, to take the Aaron perspective and be like, hey, look, there's all these different interesting flavors of the leftism ice cream. And like, (laughs) we're going to make a big, (laughs) wonderful Sunday with it. Um, But (laughs) but like that you also have the, you know, the the pro um, pro strawberry extremists that are like anyone who isn't (laughs) eating strawberry ice cream. uh, You just know that they're obviously a white supremacist.
0: (laughs) I mean, I agree. I agree. I think that having conversations and coming from different viewpoints is one of the best points of discourse among me and my comrades, right? We come together on one shared objective and, you know, have different ways of, of perhaps attacking the same problem. And, it, you know, in when you're organizing, socially organizing in the real, a lot of those conversations play out organically and you come to a, a sort of compromise or solution that sort of works for everyone that, that is looking at, you know, the pragmatic reality on the ground that would work best for a community that you're trying to help. It seems to be um, exacerbated endlessly by this uh, militant sectarianism that happens on social media. And, you know, the sticking point, instead of having these conversations in good faith and sort of having these uh, intellectual debates about the the various flavors of the Sunday, if you will, like, um, it leads to... Like just absolute bullshit, just a waste of energy and time uh, on online, you know, to be fair, though, like the consistent shifting of the major discourse that we talk about online has had the effect of pushing powerful people currently running for the presidency further left. You know, uh, the Democratic candidates who are supporting policy positions that would have been laughed out of the arena 10 years ago uh, are you have momentum in the current presidential race purely because we're having these conversations online, you know, which is a really cool step, right? Um, Like, the problem is, is that it falls short of continuing to work towards, uh, collectively work towards a a more liberated society, um, purely based on, well, you know, you're a Marxist, so, you know, after the revolution, you're just going to kill all us anarchists anyway, so why the fuck would we work with you now? And it's like, that seems to be not the best course of action i think you know i think it's it's sort of um shifting at least the our internal discourse in a space that is not productive or useful at all
3: yeah i think we got to like get some pinky swears on the record now no purges no uh <laughs> n- nothing weird like that like no matter who <laughs> no matter who is in charge of the uh whoever whoever gets the deciding vote on whatever revolutionary like parliamentary or non-parliamentary body we create no purges, uh, no, uh, Please. yeah, no purges.
4: Purges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to be humans to one another, and um, uh, not be that accepting of people who aren't willing to interact with each other on like that kind of basis, like equal human to human, and that could also help weed out some of the potential of like real paid uh shills or like government agents or anything like that um i th- i think having kind of those standards i don't really know how to set them but uh, having general standards for what productive discussion could look like would be helpful both for uh just assholes and uh like real malevolent forces and, and that could potentially be there
3: and i think there might be and maybe this is uh, i'm i'm just sort of thinking this out loud but i feel like there might be a continuity between the sort of like uh sort of dunk culture like insult comedian sort of stuff um and like this the dehumanization that would lead someone to say like oh yeah it's totally fine to purge a different flavor of anarchist if they (laughs) you know like there's some i feel like there might be some sort of continuity there that there's um like it's it's rooted in the same idea of like a lack of um a lack of centering the premise of like human dignity and decency in our work um which i think is one of the things that we should be prefiguring along with anti-racism anti-sexism and so on is that that decency of like how what are the social relations in a post-revolutionary context going to look like and i'm not talking about the revolution itself but i'm talking about you know like the utopia afterwards how do we like what are we even fighting for how are we supposed to treat each other and how can we actualize the way that we're supposed to treat each other into now without being sort of like you know doormats
4: yeah you're not waiting for this afterwards because the afterwards is vague and like when when is it even there like you gotta start this shit now like it's the it's the Real stuff, human relations with each other,
3: and these Zoomers coming up, we gotta train them to be principled, universal human liberation <laughs> uh, emancipators. We shouldn't train them to be insult comedians.
2: Well, I think that's one of the reasons too why it's so important that like we actually build the preconditions for the type of world that we want to live in in the here and now. Right? It can't just be this far off thing. Um, and and this is something that Mel and I have have circled back on many many times. But like this notion of you know, not indulging the socialist pipe dream, as Mel likes to say, but instead trying to actively build something meaningful that can make a material difference in people's lives in the here and now. Which I think is like one of the reasons why the, the label or the identity or the um ideology anarchism is only useful to me in so far as it denotes taking action, right? Like this idea of anarchy being you actually doing something. It's not something that you possess. It's not something that you take on, but it's something that you actually participate in, that something that you do.
3: Yeah, it's sort of like uh thinking of anarchism as a verb as something I I, and I like that framing. It sort of um reminds me of one of my one of the, the the intellectual titans of my political development was Buckminster Fuller and he said um, I seem to be a verb and not a noun, and it's a super psychedelic idea. But that we are, that it, we are doing, and it's like bookchin says, "Being is becoming." You know, like we aren't, we aren't a static thing. We are, we are processes, and you know, anarchism isn't a static thing. It's a process that's developing and has these different capacities and, and uh, relates to sort of the, the material world and what's happening in it. <clears throat> but also to argue the op- opposite side, I mean, it, I think in a complementary way, I hope um is that intellectual exercises and uh we need to think we, we can't just do we have to also think. We need to know what we're doing. We need to it needs to be part of a uh it needs to be part of a coherent plan that's sort of like not always a coherent plan. It can be an incoherent plan also sometimes. Um but or like little snippets of coherent <laughs> plans for here and there. But there there I feel like there is also this need for um like uh zizek said like you know the t- t- that we we should <laughs> he said i can't remember his exact wording but it was uh you know you know a lot of people say you shouldn't don't think just do but i think the opposite we should stop doing we should just stop and think for a while
4: uh well <laughs> I've just, i blanked out for half a second si- it doesn't matter um the the thing I the, <laughs> thing I the thing i was just thinking um about what you said about the socialist pipe dream um I feel like pipe dreamers is some, I don't know if anyone's ever called us pipe dreamers, but I could totally imagine them calling us that. Cause we, I think it's fair to say we do a, an amount of pipe dreaming on the show. Uh, <laughs> because like one, one positive thing I see to pipe dreaming is like criticizing the society as it currently exists is like so, so important. And we need to like define the boundaries of our unfreedom in order to know how to get around it. But also we need to dream about what we're searching for, or like what we're, what we're working towards. Uh, like we, We love describing what uh, emancipated society could look like or like pretending that we're in one, acting it out in a little comedy sketch or something like that. It's like delightful, but it also like opens up the uh, the ability to see like, oh, that's like what it could be like. You can you can connect it to an actual experience, even if it's a fake experience, a play acted experience, it's something um, described even, it's really important to kind of have that orienting picture of what you want to work towards in order to start taking those first steps. But I think like the heart of the criticism likely with the pipe dream thing is like, you can't just do that. Like you can't just imagine what the future that you would like would be like, and then that's it. Right. That's my action that I for the day. I did some imagining. Uh, it's <laughs> without also I doing the steps. A
1: little
3: bit. <laughs> yeah. I sent some intentions to the Nintendo Sphere, and I think it's all gonna come back, Marianne <laughs> Williamson. Absolutely,
4: yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I I don't mean to suggest that like intellectual exercises are unimportant. I love intellectual exercises i enjoy getting into like thoughtful conversations with friends which is one of the reasons why like mel and i have this awesome podcast that we get to like come back to and have cool conversations with folks like y'all i think it's just important that we like recognize and reaffirm that there are clear differences between having an intellectual exercise like a friendly discussion among comrades and actually taking direct action, like sabotaging machinery in order to stop an oil pipeline. Those are two very different things, right? One can lead to material action in the world. The other is is actually material action in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, absolutely. definitely.
3: And and actually, I met someone recently. I was down in uh, I was down in Washington, and I met someone who was an accomplice to shutting down a pipeline uh temporarily like that and he's uh not to dissuade people from taking action but he's now uh forbidden from crossing state borders without permission or leaving the country for a couple of years but as long as he's on good behavior uh that the, the he'll so be like allowed. state
4: to... board like internally and in the... yeah even internally oh, you he needs to that. Ask
3: permission first uh because he was an accomplice to one of these things uh but yeah. it was i was like blown away at how cool he was
2: fuck yeah hell yeah <laughs> dude uh, Mel, what are your thoughts? Um, you've been you've been quiet. I know that you uh you, you're a deep thinker. So so give us give us some of your thoughts. I have a lot
0: of thoughts. No, um, my reference to the socialist pie dream is exactly that. It, they, there's a difference between having a sort of um utopian vision, right? That that informs your praxis, right, that informs your, gives you the incurable optimism that you need in order to combat a system that is bleak as fuck and makes everyone feel tired and ready to die, Um, you know, but it's this, this concept, I hear it a lot among some of my amazing comrades, where it's like, well, after the revolution, this is what's going to happen, and, you know, Pearson and I have talked about this a lot, where when you you inform your statements by saying well after this big major upset then we can get to the real work um it's it pushes you into this place of complacency um and you can hang your hat on the imaginings that you have every day and that's it um as long as you're thinking about it and you're hopeful for it then that's cool you don't necessarily have to you know walk the talk um and you can fall into that trap really easily and so uh I too am a pipe dreamer, man, if that's what we're going to call it. I have, I have serious hopes for, you know, the, I am optimistic about where we can take the society and the steps that we can take to get there. Uh, you know, uh, comrades with, say, for example, like the inhabit project or are, are doing things like that, you know, they are imagining a world in which they want to live. And then they are taking the steps that they need to take in order to, to manifest that world. Right. Um, when you just get stuck in the the, the sort of tit for tat uh, political identity politics that we talk about within leftist tendencies, um, you get real. You get into just this like massive circle jerk of screaming at each other all the time you know, and instead of using the internet in to sort of circle this conversation back around, sort of using instead of using the internet to sort of um, hash out these issues and then find a a, a way to move forward into Manifesting that sort of material change that we're looking for, and need to see to to have these preconditions for for a truly uh, liberated society. Um, you're just yelling into the void, and the internet's not being used as the tool that it should be used. You know, um, and it, it sucks. It sucks to see. It, it sends people like me into a tailspin a lot of times because I'm just like so frustrated by it, and I don't I don't want to lose sight of these truly beautiful liberatory concepts that inform how I live my life and and the the type of social organizing that I do. And you can get real stuck having these stupid conversations with people uh, constantly on Twitter, you know, and and never get any closer to actual real material change.
4: Yeah, the conversations uh, going nowhere thing is like... (laughs) I think it comes from people like approaching them from this again this perspective of like perceived uh, uh betterness of your ideas like I'm I'm here even the idea of like I'm here to educate my fellow comrades about my ideas I'm here I'm here to educate people about these things that they might not know about when the other people are like, well, you're not really educating me. Like we have a disagreement. I'm here to educate you. And like two people come into a conversation, both there to educate the other one about opposite ideas or like a uh, uh, opposite beliefs about a particular really specific thing that we're all arguing about this week. Um, it's not ever going to get anywhere because, I mean, maybe some of the audience members will be convinced one way or the other, but the two people will just uh, have disdain for one another usually, or like maybe an amicable disagreement if you're lucky. But, like, I'd... I don't know. I I think it is possible, and like I've done it a few times, to use the internet to have a real discussion, like a meeting of minds, where both people have the intention of uh, truly understanding where the other person is coming from first, and then mutually describing a solution that incorporates parts of both, or like a compromise, or a third way to look at the issue that is agreeable to everyone. Like that stuff is possible it's extremely difficult to do online um slightly less difficult in person cuz at least then you can hear their tone of voice and like their body language and get all those oh this is another human being signals uh that are completely missing online usually but even online it is possible but like it's such an uphill battle and it's like how do you h- how do you get everybody to participate in a discussion in good faith like I don't know if there's any answer to that question like it's like it it seems almost like hopeless to actually use it that way most of the time
3: mm, this it also connects to the the sort of like co-intel pro sort of stuff or at least the paranoia that you may be interacting with someone who's not acting in good faith and whether the representative of a government body or a political party or um, uh, corporation or whatever else, or some sort of nefarious group that's funding people to make sock accounts. If there's this idea that you may or may not actually be talking to a real person, which is totally part of the dynamic of arguing with people on Twitter, where you have these like uh, piece of shit egg accounts who want to say the dumbest crap possible. Um, <clears throat> that sort of like paranoia and uncertainty and in inhumanity of the platform, where like Aaron said, you're alone, but you're still interacting with someone. Um, like that's, I think also part of the picture here of like why this stuff gets so toxic and whether we're doing it because of infiltration. And I know from experience, it takes a relatively small amount of stock accounts to change the pH balance of a forum. Like it's easy enough to do with some friends. I recommend it. Um, for, for good ends, of course. Um, but the, the audience is
4: like, oh, we were going to do it for evil ends, but okay. <laughs>
2: yeah, we... Everyone go invade like, uh, the Donald subreddit and just turn it into like a li- liberated socialist utopia. <laughs> yeah that,
4: that's a big one you'll need a lot of sake yeah that would, for that. Be, that would be a tough one but a worthy
3: cause oh and just one more thing about the the, the pipe dream stuff that, that mel was mentioning before because i agree entirely about the after the revolution uh sort of crap um although i love the after revolution crap and indulge myself in it almost daily um there's a real risk there there's two risks the one risk is the ideological pra- procrastination that says that one day everything will be perfect so we don't need to do stuff now um, and that sort of procrastination, I think, is absolutely deadly uh, because we should be prefiguring and entr- uh, entering into institutions and doing narrative work. But the other thing and the the real risk and the thing that I worry about that connects to this sort of spectrum of sort of cruelty and dehumanization that I mentioned earlier um, is the idea that everything after the revolution is going to be so perfect that we have a blank check to do whatever unethical, cruel thing now in the present.
2: Bullshit. Yeah. Mm hmm. No, 100%, which again, I mean, listen, y'all, it seems like all of these conversations just keep circling back to the idea of prefiguration, right? Like this idea of like treating one another with the type of humanity and justice that we would like to see put into the world, right? Like, we're not going to be able to dismantle an unjust system by using unjust means. The, the means are, are, are do not justify the ends, the means are the ends, to use the, the old uh, adage, right? You know, the system cannot be dismantled without us meeting these preconditions of, of building upon the spontaneous revolutionary energy that is so often swallowed up in the tedium of ideology right? We, these things get perverted and twisted before they ever really have a chance to blossom. And I think that this happens like on both like the traditional like anarchist and Marxist side, right? Where, you know, Marxists might say that it's a failure of spontaneity to evolve into an organized strategy, whereas anarchists would sometimes almost be just content with just pointing fingers instead of actually self-critiquing what limitations anarchist ideology might have in organizing the working class struggle. And I think one of the things that you know, like you said, when when we're able to come together and have these conversations in a meaningful and in a dynamic way, I think it actually is possible to get some really interesting work done and to offer some some new insights, some new ideas, and some new um, conceptions to the table. For example. You guys recently had a collaborative episode with Brett and Allison from Red Menace, where you guys talked about this idea of scientific socialism. It's one of my favorite episodes that y'all have ever done, um, and it's really interesting because the way you guys ended that episode—spoiler alert—was by doing some some of that imagining, right? Some of that alternative world building, that 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 future that hoping that we're all hoping for. But you had a bunch of ideas in there that were really unique and actually. Genuinely knew that I hadn't ever considered or thought of before, right? This idea of like, you know, communes that are cu- coming together to associate with one another, that are, um, you know, willing to experiment and respect each other's autonomy. And I think that that's the kind of really interesting material that can come to light when we decide not to dig our heels into the ground, but instead decide to actually treat another. As if we trust each other, as if we already want to believe that the best is possible and that we can respect one another enough to ask questions, to challenge each other from a from a place of comradely good faith, and to try and imagine what it might be like to live more justly and to not only live more justly in the f- future, but to live more justly right here right now in order to build those conditions for a better world
3: yeah i mean the the prefigurative stuff is just foundational absolutely needed and i would pair that with one of the the framings that we've been using recently on the show is the combination between prefiguration uh the the utilization of resources from existing systems and narrative work like uh like mel mentioned when it comes to the the presidential debates this year where all the democrats are all of a sudden Talking about uh, like single payer healthcare as if it's common sense, whereas in 2016 it was this crazy idea, and that's like the strength of narrative work. And I think these things sort of can pair together in a complementary sort of like holistic ecology of tactics that can, uh, I don't, eventually uh, emancipate all humanity uh, for 10,000 years of world peace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Today's episode of Coffee with Comrades is brought to you by Extremely Online Leftist Consulting.
2: Have you ever wanted to commodify your personality? Have you ever wanted to present yourself as a more woke, militant, and serious leftist? Have you never googled Murray Bookchin but want people to think you have? Hire extremely online leftist consulting for all your cynical reputation maximizing
0: needs. Guaranteed to increase your clout by over 9,000% within two news cycles, we will give you five custom hot takes per day in our basic package. And for those more advanced users, we can provide screenshots of ideological enemies which show they were secretly evil all along.
2: Let's hear from some of our
0: satisfied
2: customers.
4: Extremely online leftist consulting has revolutionized my praxis by developing sock puppet accounts to gang up on other leftists I don't 100% agree with. And I've sprung for the advanced package and at only $79.99 per week, for less than the cost of 12 coffees per day, I'm never missing a single current event and or web drama. My takes are straight fire, fam. I was so pathetic and bad at politics. My takes were
3: stale. Everyone thought I was a liberal. Everyone knew I was a liberal. Something had to change. Since I hired extremely online leftist consulting, They've helped ensure that my unique leftist brand is truly revolutionary. All the other inferior leftists are cowering at me and my superior brand. Thanks, Extremely Online Leftist Consulting. You're a lifesaver.
2: At Extremely Online Leftist Consulting, we have teams of dedicated professionals standing by to help you make sure the internet will never get rid of you. I mean, you you guys are, you guys are storytellers and so are we, right? Like you guys use, you know, comedy sketches in your show and Mel and I are both writers. Like we're both storytellers. Um, and I think that all of us can come come together. And when we do that narrative work or storytelling or whatever you want to call it and, and try and actually imagine something better, something different, um, and, and recognize that it doesn't have to be, post-revolution quote-unquote but it can be something that we live and experience and build together right here right now i think that can make all the difference in the world in adjusting the overton window to making it like something that's palatable for for people and making it something that like you said is even common sense
4: yeah we just thinking about this prefiguration stuff and like especially the specific aspects of it we've been talking about in this episode which um i don't want to reduce it too much but in a lot of ways we've been talking about being nice to one another is good and it's actually uh like strangely sometimes that is a controversial statement to make in certain online discussions
3: and like aaron i can't believe you're saying that you should be nice to hitler Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I mean, depending on the context, maybe it might even be good to be nice to Hitler. But like, yeah, wow. that's
1: <laughs>
2: I don't know. I don't know, homie. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh <laughs> You're promoting but, a like, contextual <laughs> understanding of niceness, Discussed and the, and the,
4: I, like I want to say, like I do understand that there's critiques of this, like you know, people can use oh, you should be nice as a bludgeon to uh, <laughs> try and silence people who've been traumatized or oppressed uh, from expressing their like completely valid rage or upset or <clears throat> pain, and that's like. Not what I'm trying to do. And I'm not trying to say like, everyone should be nice all the time. And we need to like, completely eliminate all other modes of human relationship. And like nothing absurd like that. But just like, no
3: one should ever get upset or be angry. It's always just all smiles all the time and Aaron's utopia. No <laughs> yeah, I,
4: I hate all emotions other than joy. I think like twenty four seven joy. No, like the fullness of human experience comp- comprises of all these things, and that's important and good. But also, like human relationship and relating to one another is a skill that, um. Uh, re- relating to one another in in a in a in a kind and gentle way is actually a really important skill uh, whether you're doing like organizing or whether you're just like at a job with other people or w- whatever you're doing like the ability to uh have positive social interactions is like so so important And it is a kind of prefigurative step, and, like, we want to, like, have these utopian social relations and be able to bring them into our day-to-day lives. And, like, gentleness and compassion are, like, important things. It's not, like, just some joke. It's not like you... Oh, like... people think of niceness as weakness i guess or like niceness as unseriousness in a way like oh i'm so serious by how much of an asshole i'm being like i'm showing that to you and it's it ties into this online stuff but it also ties into the what well, we started the episode talking about with capitalism and like the way that competition infects all of the aspects of our life and just the way that we are atomized in the society and separated from one another. And like we lack meaningful community and connections, even with the people we live in close proximity to a lot of the time. And it all ends up in this situation where you have people in this capitalist society who are hurt and traumatized and in pain because of things their parents did to them because of the way that the system denies us access to basic needs that we all uh, need to physically survive, but also for our emotional and mental well-being. And we're in this, like, constant state of deprivation, and it makes it really hard for people to um, do that kind of, like, introspection and self-work that is necessary to have meaningful positive connections with other people And I think that's why a lot of the people you see online doing this, like, the really extremely negative online behavior, if you ever, like, are able to talk to them, a lot of them are incredibly lonely. They have no friends. They're sitting by themselves in, like, a room with just the blue light of the computer screen washing over them for hours, and they're in pain, and they're traumatized. And, like, there's no support for that in our society. There's nowhere for people, there's not nowhere, I shouldn't say that, there is support, but it's just very insufficient. And sometimes it's very difficult to find. And like, I think if we want to start talking about being kind to one another, and like having these positive beneficial relationships with one another, that involves uh, like really offering support and care for one another and the ability for like helping people work out their shit and become better people. Like it's not counter-revolutionary to do self-work. It's not counter-revolutionary to figure out how to make your life as good as it can be because that makes you the best person it can be and it makes you able to interact with other people, with your comrades in the most productive way possible and for you to have the best effect in the world through your actions like we're all we're all hurting because of the way society is right now and like that's i think one of the main things that really we need to be doing is like helping each other through this pain that the society is
0: bringing us i
2: agree wholeheartedly
0: i mean i agree yeah some of my most like militant comrades some of the some of the individuals that i find uh, to be the most dedicated to whatever social organizing cause that they have taken up. Uh, Some of the most uh, badass, rage-filled, like, ready-to-throw-down-with-state people that I know are also some of the most compassionate, empathetic human beings that I have ever had. Like, the supreme joy to know, right? These are the kind of people that you get into a conversation with them, and they are— very soft-spoken and um, insightful, and they, they make you feel smarter just by associating with them, right? And they're also, like, super militant and, like, ready to fucking throw down. And, like, this idea that compassion is... Having compassion and empathy for you know, your fellow human is a weakness It's just a load of bullshit. And it's like exacerbated by the shit posting online and the, you know, this, what we've been talking about where snarky comments and, you know, the biting gnarly satire that sort of crosses a line into just outright cruelty um, is seen as the the sort of um, the best course of action just sucks, you know, because the vast majority of like great working relationships with social organizers are based out of that compassion and that empathy and that, that ability to recognize that, uh, we're all like tragically humans, you know, and dealing with the tragedy of our, of our very short shitty lives and are trying to make it better. Um, and, and, you know you talk about this prefiguration compassion most definitely is part of that and and being able to see that gross injustice is happening in the world and that uh if we have the ability to we can incrementally really start to like shift the pieces and and stop that from happening and you know if your entire worldview is colored by being cruel to others then uh, you've already sort of, like, kneecapped yourself before you even started.
4: Yeah.
2: I wholeheartedly agree. Uh,
3: Something that I I really wanted to talk about in the the context of this episode, in the extremely online left, you know, we can talk about being extremely online in terms that we have so far of this sort of negative... Connotation of like you're too online, man. When so- when someone's getting in like a big argument uh, for like yeah. hours back and forth,
0: like go the fuck outside. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah, and too online is my favorite insult right now. It's like because um, sometimes I need to hear it, but I also uh, see other people who need to hear it, <laughs> and then I tell it to them. But the <laughs> like we're in a unique historical context that isn't fully evaluated and, and I think fully understood the implications of. Um, and it, it like, so we, we, we were in this, uh, just to provide the context of what I'm thinking about, um, it's sort of an unthinkable idea. It was at the time, uh, it, it was a hundred years ago, an unthinkable idea that we would have a network, uh, an information communications technology network that connects each and every one of us it connects the four of us even before we ever sent emails back and forth online about collaborating it connects us and Elon Musk it connects us and everyone who's listening we have these devices in our uh in our pockets that if you type in the right numbers it will connect you directly to a conversation with uh, another person but like almost literally any person in the world like billions and billions and billions of people are on this network it's like it's like what the fuck? Like what what, what are we what, we're, what we don't even understand this world that we're in. It's like it's crazy how much access to other people to communicate that we have that you can send an email to anyone and also the access to information that we have online. Um and this is even like stifled uh this is even the access to information that we have online stifled by by sort of capitalism and and these like paywall networks and stuff. Not to speak of even the potentiality of it where you could have a totally liberated like complete human library for the first time um in history where we could access literally all information at once from from our phone at any given time um so like this is the territory like this is the material reality that we have to interact with is this global network uh community that we're now in that is still like pretty young overall um at least to the capacity at least to the level that it's at now and like this is one of the frontiers that we as leftists are going to have to become extremely online about and like <laughs> like we 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 have to use twitter we have to use facebook and email and whatever else um we also have to use these um these uh you know these these cell phones it's, they're partially horrible um like they're they're partially burdensome the name cell is appropriate um but they're also very liberatory in a sense and they have both potentialities and i just wanted to Sort of bring that because it's something I keep on returning to recently is um, just in my thinking is like how we need to have this serious conversation about what this means and figure out how what the future of the extremely online left is and how we can make sure that it's a liberatory online left. Um, I don't have the answer to that, but I just wanted to like lay out sort of how I see this unique historical moment, which might have. Uh, revolutionary implications beyond sort of what we've, uh, what we've so far been able to piece together as a group.
0: I mean, it certainly was the sort of vision of, of the utopian creators of the internet. That's for sure. You know, the free and open internet open to all access is open to everyone, you know, sort of been subsumed by, like I said, by capitalist competition and, and the ability to gatekeep much easier through paywall systems and things like that. Um, you know i wrote in the notes like i'm curious if it's even possible for us to really grasp that enormity um i <coughs> uh pearson and i are part of the 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 last bit of the millennial generation that that um sort of grew up with the uh acceleration of digital technology and had to kind of come we came into it sort of naturally Um, the generation right after us was born after that technology had already become commonplace. So, um, you know, I wonder if any zoomer listeners actually listen to our podcast. I'm curious to see what their thoughts are on it. Um, But we've definitely become more connected, but we're as isolated as ever. Like it's this illusion of connection, right? It's It's sort of palliative in that sense that, you know, um, I've noticed that many of my friends and comrades including myself are aching for this like real human touch and interaction. You know, how do we combat that isolation while still leveraging the internet as this absolutely incredibly effective tool for organizing? The the Gilets Jaunes protests um were kicked off on Facebook and are continued to be organized through um dedicated websites that are culling information from Facebook posts and events so that uh, there's a, a space for you, to, the sort of um, online message board, uh, cork board of, of all these protests so that people know where to go during you know, the weekends. It's an extremely coordinated effort. Um, but I've been grappling with this sort of leveraging the internet as a tool um, because I spoke, I speak often about the need for like getting out getting outside, feeling fresh air and sunshine, you know, and not constantly organizing behind a screen. Um, and it's reached, like, near neo-Luddite levels of zealousness. But, like, I've not, like, you know, diagnosing these problems isn't really touching, like, the core of, of what sort of utility digital spaces can have in organizing efforts. And, you know, I don't have any answers either. It's definitely something that I've been mulling over um, because my relationship with the internet had, in the past has been incredibly unhealthy and um i have you know i would count myself among the the shit posters and the o- anonymous online trolls that that used to go through forums and and just be a shithead for the sake of being a shithead because i was very lonely you know and it it's difficult to sort of like uh i don't know just grapple with the the enormity of it as you say you know, because I do, I agree. We are in this very unique historical moment that has not necessarily been seen before, um, at least not since like the inventing of the the invention of the printing press or something. You know what I mean? And it's it. How can we leverage those tools without further alienating each other and ourselves?
4: Yeah, no, it's it's not an easy question at all. And you mentioning the term palliative really hit me uh, hard because it's like the the idea that we we are all globally connected, and like we have these connections to each other, but they're a kind of like ghost of a connection. Like I don't want to say it's not a real connection, like it is in a sense, but it's only, uh, you know, usually often it's just text. Like it's 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 missing so much of what actual human interaction is about that it's like it gives you just enough that like you don't need to go seek actual social interactions like you come home from work and like you go on Facebook for a few hours and like you kind of you got it you like you feel like you interacted with people but there's something missing from it but like in that one evening whatever it's fine you don't like it's just (laughs) you want to go to bed you want to do whatever thing Uh, but like over the course of day after day after day where you're constantly using it as this alternative to actual uh in-person human interaction those deficiencies become they, they they build up inside you and like you do get end up with like all these like really deeply lonely people and i'm like that too a lot of the time like by myself a lot of the time and it's really like we recently did an episode on the power of friendship uh we'd like to do some of these fun episodes like that sometimes but like we also like to we, we like to cover like darker aspects of these things and like in the power of friendship we were talking about people using it for really bad ends uh but one of the darker sides of friendship or the power of friendship that we didn't think to talk about in that episode that a lot of people mentioned to us uh because again like we're online and on twitter like you know loneliness like I don't have any friends I don't have many friends or I'd like don't go out I don't meet with people a lot and like this episode kind of made me depressed because I am so lonely and uh, yeah just reading a lot of that feedback in those comments I was like yeah like and I feel that too like it, it would have been a really good thing to talk about in that episode but it was like so it's so, so prevalent in the world as it is today. And it does seem to at least partially be a fa- an effect of this global connective ability that like you just people didn't foresee that it would have this side effect. And like there are, there is all this like positive potential for it. And even like, if you think about the Occupy movement, the way that it was able to spread and be like this kind of like thing that happened all over America, but also in Canada and like countries around the world as well was partially through the internet like the internet really made all that possible so there like there still are these like sparks of like real potential for um amazing things to happen because of the internet but like it is so new and there's all like we The utopian dreamers who set up the internet had all these, like, amazing visions for the positive things it could bring about, and people are getting a lot more skeptical, I think, rightly, about that today. But I think a lot of those positive visions are still possible, but we just have to contend with the dark side of it and all these negative consequences that people didn't see. When they were busily busy utopianly dreaming about all the potential,
3: maybe one of the ways that we could think about um, uh, the, the like the loneliness internet problem is like uh, hum, human interactions existing on a scale like with the lowest of which is where you make a proclamation to the world and then wait for people to react. Well, which is like the dominant mode of communication on social media programs where our platforms where you're like here's my here's my 180 twi- uh, 180 character tweet and now i'll just wait for people to react to it it's a proclamation to the world like that's sort of the lowest form of like social interaction but you can think of it as like a scale upwards where you could have say like voice conversations or video conversations or uh, just one-on-one conversations in text even is higher than the proclamation i think but then and, and sort of think, how can we move people um, up that scale and like, how can we make it normal to move up that scale? Because I think so as someone like and this isn't something that I think people are super eager to talk about all the time. But as someone I've used the Internet as a cure, uh, as a temporary salve for loneliness, and it didn't really work very well. It actually, uh, it's like salt water, <laughs> you know, it's like drinking salt water to deal with thirst sometimes. Uh, But something that has been really helpful for me in the times where I felt isolated uh, because of, you know, mixture between using the Internet too much and or like working too hard on these different projects and like uh, getting out of contact with friends and stuff like that and not not having those community hubs, uh, which would be so normal throughout. You know most of the trajectory the developmental trajectory of humankind uh where we you didn't have an option to go in a room by yourself and make proclamations about the state of the world in 180 characters Uh, and who knew that we would choose that um over meeting up in groups um but something that has been really helpful to me is uh reintroducing phone calls into my life uh like phone calls with friends who live far out of town i find if i call my friends in vancouver where i live they're like why the are you calling me and I'm like, oh, just to chat. And they're like, oh, you're weird. You're weirding me out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if I call my friends from other cities and I call my friends like from that I've known for years since I was a kid or whatever, there's there's a different dynamic with the long distance phone call. And it's like a good sort of entry point for me at least, and like really meaningful things that can address the, the isolation, loneliness that comes with the digitally connected society. Um and and so maybe the question is in a part like how can we do this ourselves but also how can we make it a culturally normal thing to uh, move up the scale of engagement and move up the scale of like human engagement with each other that um encourages more of those sort of like interpersonal um human like like aaron mentioned as far as like the subtle movements of people's faces and seeing them react to you and having that sort of human connection um and and how can we make that a cultural norm so when people are feeling isolated and, and when people need that, um, that that human connection, um, that they feel like it's normal and there's places for them to go to move up that scale to you know voice conversation, video, and then meet in person.
0: I find it interesting that we talk about this, um, because that was the cultural norm prior to like 1996. You know what I mean? Like, and it's very strange to, to be you know 20 years on from the invention you know, the popularity of the internet to be talking about how to to reach back into, to more, um, physical human connection. You know what I mean? It's, it seems almost absurd to me, um, just to like, to hear us talk about this, even though it's a very real consequence of, of, of our, um, willingness to engage with digital technology in the way that we have, um, protean magazine has this series by michael malloy called all my friends live in my phone and so do i and it grapples with a lot of the same sort of concepts that we're talking about uh regarding social media regarding technology in general its utility to 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 certain social movements and and what it's done necessarily to uh change the landscape of our social society um and it's a really good read you should def- there's i think they're at five there's five parts to it now at this point um but it's just really interesting because we talk a lot about needing to sort of reach back and and find these spaces of uh communication that aren't so atomized and stuck behind a screen and I know that Pearson and I both do the same thing. We call our friends from out of town. We try our best to 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 meet up wherever possible. I mean, Pearson drove, you know, flew like 1200 miles just to hang out for a week so that we could get to know each other in like a real space. And I think that sort of stuff is incredibly important. Um and it's going to be interesting to see how we continue to to create those recreate those social norms that for millennia were social norms, you know. Um, And what that's going to look like in a digital society. Will it be different? Will it be the same? You know, will we just be reaching, will we uh, come come back 50 years from now and say that, yes, digital technology actually caused this regression in social communication uh, more so than it already has? Or I'm curious to see uh, how it's going to continue to shape our society. And um, particularly from like a liberatory standpoint, we talked about this in our post-scarcity anarchism episode about. the true liberatory concept of automation in a liberated society and what that looks like in terms of uh, technology and how that might actually help us further our goals toward creating universal liberation in a society.
2: Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Well, I mean, like, I think, uh, I think too, like, this is a good positive note to kind of maybe wrap, wrap up on, right? Like we really do need to begin radically critiquing the way that we write, the way that we think and the way that we talk with and about one another. If we're going to have any hope of, overthrowing capitalist hegemony, right? We have to have these conversations, not just the four of us, but everyone who's listening to this podcast, take it out of your ears, They go talk to other human beings about it, right? And, and, and engage and, and um, discuss and explore and challenge one another to think about how we can try and mediate and create more human friendships how how can we be nice to each other how can we be better friends how can we move from just being comrades to being fucking friends right i think that that's such a such an important thing it's something i think about way too often is like i don't want to just be comrades with the people who i do radical organizing stuff with i want to be fucking friends with them too you know and i think that that's important um I think, it, you know, uh, again, at the at the risk of sounding cliche or or silly, like, I really genuinely do think that love and militant joy are central to any type of revolutionary energy. Um, and, And any militancy that doesn't have love at its heart is void in my opinion. Yeah. I've taken yeah.
3: some shit for talking about the revolutionary love, but I agree wholeheartedly. It's, it's just so, yeah, it's, it's, it's just so, so important that we are guided by, um, an idea of the world that we want to create, which is going to be, I mean, I hope, I hope everyone agrees, um, a world where people have what they need and what people need. Obviously, one of the things that people need is caring relationships and communities. And, uh, the 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 you know the word love can be used in an obscurantist sort of like liberal like oh just love the nazis enough and they'll eventually agree with you or something like yeah, that, that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah yeah fuck that <laughs> but you know there's the, the 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 form and content stuff of like you can have a non-loving form like throwing a milkshake that carries the love of you know the the it has the, the content is love as i throw the milkshake at the nazi because i love the people the nazis seek to destroy uh
0: that's love that's revolutionary love
1: i love it
2: that i that is revolutionary love par excellence
0: well and it's also important to note that like you know we talk about wanting to to sort of reform those human connections uh as we can uh outside of digital spaces and this sort of regression of social communication, uh, in a digital age. Um, it's not like we're so far down the pike that it's not possible for us to to really like cut through that alienation, you know, just because it's taken a different form than the usual that has been discussed in, you know, two hundred years of Marxist theory, it's uh doesn't mean that we can't find those inroads and that they aren't already presenting themselves to us in, in very meaningful ways. And, you know, um, Pearson and I would not be doing this podcast together if we didn't meet on the fucking internet. But, you know, we we worked we work, continuously work hard to to cultivate a friendship and, and a you know, that extends far beyond just a working relationship and we do our best to, to not be so very fucking online.
2: And we're not always good at it either. No we do live twelve hundred miles away. Yeah.
0: But, you know, it's like many of the, the relationships that we started to cultivate began in a digital space and um, you know, like you said, <clears throat> taking the steps to to sort of reach out beyond that, from beyond that screen, to make those phone calls, to have those meaningful conversations. And even as Pearson and I have talked about multiple times, listening to the fucking podcast together on the couch, you know what I mean? Just these very, they're very small actions that we can take that uh, already uh, do, you know, cover far more ground and, and make the work seem less overwhelming. And less isolating, particularly in a society that is hell-bent on continuing to separate us.
3: Oh, I agree entirely. I I really want to hear Aaron talk about Mr. Rogers and why Mr. Rogers is great. It feels so relevant here.
4: Oh. Yes. (laughs) i kind of i did that bit from the thing but i just didn't mention (laughs) mr rogers but um
2: no no that's a great that's i think i feel like that's a great way a great note to end on so lay it on us (laughs) if you want you don't have to
4: (laughs) like i i want to but i'm just like it's not it's not popping to mind uh do you want to talk about mr rogers I'll get started. You can take over for me. So we (laughs) love
3: Mr. Rogers on the show. Like we made before, you know, we we're like total Mr. Pro Mr. Rogers, uh, intellectual leftist hipsters. You know, we were we were back in Mr. Rogers before uh, left Twitter got behind him before the uh, (laughs) before the Mr. Rogers uh, documentary came out. was cool exactly before it was cool back when it was still lame uh and know what now we're we're, we're getting out there on new lame stuff like the world anthem google it <laughs> uh you know care bears revolutionary too but let's not get into that now mr Rogers. um there's something so that wholesomeness it was so it is so missing still to a great degree for 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 mr rogers uh, for for the left it was not missing for mr rogers he got it down um where you have and, and it's not that he's above criticism. I mean the stuff you know it's covered in the documentary he told his gay coworker to stay in the closet and stuff and and shame on you Mr. Rogers for that misstep. But the uh and, and ethical violation I think. But Mr. Rogers is like a public figure. He's one of the few figures and we have a small handful in 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 uh recent media that that really made and staked their reputation on decency and also uh decency in particular directed at children who are developing. Um, because we live in such a cruel world it's so like it's 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 uh sad uh to to imagine um like young people growing up in the world full of just all this horrible horrible news where you see that there's that recent um you know like the image of the border crossing people who had uh, died in the river that was all over the news and stuff like that i was disgusted to see i mean it's good to get people disgusted about the horrors at the border at the southern border in the us but to see that type of imagery repeatedly is just so like and and the fact that we're subjecting children to this i completely uh I find myself agreeing with the mr rogers perspective on like being like really child-proofing our world because uh you know children deserve so much better than what they're going to get uh and so anything that we can do to close that gap or make it better is 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 uh cool cool by me but we need a we need a mr rogers left to a certain degree we need a, a a someone we we need a a disposition towards leftism that sees uh the tr- the traumatized people the people who are can be violent in their rhetoric or or cruel in their online these sort of like digitally feral people who are spending all their time connected online and not spending much time in person uh with others like we need to have a level of compassion for them also and to to engage with them and their developmental trajectory towards better ends um and so like what we've been talking a bit about the face to face interactions and also the coming to each other with differences, with a, a real understanding of being able to come to a common new understanding together through that development, through that back and forth of ideas. That sort of like developmental ideological engagement, that democratic engagement there, uh, dem- democratic in the anarchist sense, not in the, the like checkbox sense, um, of cultivating people's uh, consciousness and personality and, and uh, political engagement um it's just i think that's that's the that's what we have in front of us that we have to do um and i see mr rogers as sort of an, an embodiment of that in in the the way that he staked out his career on that like radical decency um and also on that unique attention given to what children experience in the world and so i i just can't back the revolutionary potentiality of mr rogers enough i think he's actually despite <laughs> despite everything that's going on uh, with him being, you know, the mis- Mr. Rogers guillotine memes and stuff like that, his full revolutionary potential hasn't yet fully been tapped. And I was so proud recently. A friend of mine, a social ecologist, like we identify as social ecologists, not that it really matters. Um, so we love post-scarcity anarchism. I'm so glad you did an episode on it. Um, the <laughs> uh, I was I was trying to make the case to him. Mr. Rogers' thought is a serious political perspective. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing
2: because I can totally see that argument and (laughs) think that it actually has some validity not because it's absurd although it is also absurd but also like great because like absurd things are good and necessary and wonderful
3: that's exactly that's the 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 space that we try to uh take up on seriously wrong is the intersection between something necessary and good and fundamentally absurd and weird um (laughs) uh, but I convinced them
2: those are good vectors
3: I convinced my, fr- you know, my very, very serious revolutionary friend, came back a little while later, and he said, you know what, I underestimated how important and good Mr. Rogers' thought is, and it was the proudest day of my life.
0: That is so <laughs>
2: awesome. Uphold Mr. Rogers' thought.
4: Just to finish the Mr. Rogers bit, uh, I'll read a quote from Fred Rogers. Uh, we can't be expected to leave the unhappy and angry parts of ourselves at the door before coming in. We all need to feel that we can bring the whole of ourselves to the people who care about us. Honesty is often very hard. The truth is often very painful. But the freedom it can bring is worth the trying.
2: Oh.
3: Nailed it, Mr.
4: Rogers. Nailed it.
2: (laughs) Fucking nailed it. Well, listen, guys, thank you so much for coming on this show. Like, seriously, it's been an honor chatting with the two of you guys. It's been fun bouncing ideas around. I know that this is, uh, you know, a subject that's very close to all four of our hearts. Um, For folks who aren't aware, can you tell listeners where they can find you guys on social media, uh, dare I say, after us, you know, talking about uh, both the, the traumas and also the positives of social media, um, where can folks find you and and um, how can they check out Seriously Wrong, plug your Patreon, all that fun stuff.
3: Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. And actually before that, I just want to say thanks for having us on. This is an awesome conversation. And uh, so many of the points uh, that, that you two brought up are just so important and, and I think undersaid and, and need to be sold through the 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 lens that we're bringing it's like a very serious conversation about the the need for universal human emancipation. So I, I appreciate immensely what what you what you brought to the conversation here and also that you gave us the opportunity to engage with you on it. Um but yeah, so our podcast it's spelled S R S L Y wrong, seriously wrong. Uh you can go to seriouslywrong.com. Uh we're also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where we post memes that we wouldn't post elsewhere. Uh mostly just like when I'm sort of stoned. <laughs> And <laughs> um, I
4: don't even know what's on our Instagram. I've never uh, been there.
3: Aaron's <laughs> never looked at the Instagram. So, you know, it's real good. Like I just, <laughs> I'm keeping it alive. Uh,
2: and we <laughs> only the spiciest of me. Yeah, exactly. Stuff- <laughs>
3: what aaron doesn't want you to see <laughs> um <laughs> uh, and then yeah we're also um on patreon the show that we do is uh, lis- entirely listener supported we don't do uh, we don't do ads well we do we do fake ads multiple times an episode uh but we don't where you're never going to hear an ad for some piece of shit mattress or whatever on our show uh so anyone who wants to, <laughs> to chip into that it's massively appreciated uh and uh yeah, thanks again for, for having us on the, on the show. And uh, also you should chip into, you, you do Patreon too, right? They do, yeah.
2: Yeah, we sure do. We do.
3: Yeah, ch- chip into that one if you're listening to this RSS feed.
2: Hey. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Hey. Well, seriously, y'all, uh, it's been a blast. Um, cheers. Take care. Awesome. Thanks. thanks. And that about does it for this week's episode of Coffee with Comrades.
0: This is an entirely DIY show run by workers for workers.
2: If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Twitter at Coffee w Comrades.
0: Check out our website, www.coffeewithcomrades.com and support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Coffee with Comrades.
2: And be sure to subscribe to our show on your podcasting platform of choice so you never miss an episode.
0: While you're there, smashing that subscribe button, it also really helps us out if you could rate and review the show to help us increase our reach.
2: If you have feedback, criticism, or you'd just like to get in touch with us, you can shoot us a DM on Twitter or email us at coffeewithcomrades at gmail.com.
0: Until next week, stay wild out there, comrades. <laughs>